Hello and welcome to Disastrous History. My name is Anthony, and I am the host of this wonderful mess of a show that will attempt to chronicle some of the biggest and most interesting disasters, messes, and all-around screw-ups that have happened throughout the centuries. Now it's darker than a dungeon, and it's deeper than a well, so sometimes I imagine that I'm getting pretty close to hell, and in my darkest hour, I cry out to the Lord. He says, keep on a mining, boy, because that's why you were born. Those lyrics are an excerpt from the song Coal by Tyler Childers, and that fits this week's episode, because we're going to talk about coal. You see, the last several weeks have been very high-profile, very visible disasters that get a lot of coverage, and I'd like to go underground, literally. This week's disaster is the Upper Big Branch Mining Disaster that happened on Monday, April 5th, 2010. The Upper Big Branch Mine was a coal mine located outside Mont Cole, West Virginia. Mont Cole is an unincorporated coal town in south-central West Virginia. Since the disaster, the town has basically become a ghost town since the mine is closed and, well, there's no reason to live in the town if there's no coal mine because there's no jobs in the town. There might be a few stragglers living there, but it's doubtful. It sits on the south side of a bend in the Big Coal River. Everything in West Virginia is named after coal. Everything in West Virginia centers around coal and sometimes moonshine and West Virginia football, if we're being real honest. So what is a coal town? Well, in the simplest terms, a coal town is a town built by a coal company as housing for miners on a coal field. Because coal was often found outside of settled areas, so way out in the middle of the mountains, the company would have to create a place for the miners to live in order to work the coal. So say they find coal on some random Appalachian mountain that was recently logged, because that's generally how they found it. They'd log a mountain way out the middle of nowhere and find coal somewhere in there and be like, hey, bring out the coal company. There's a good chance that there aren't any good roads to get back to that mountain, so the company would set up a temporary town made of tents and whatever else they could string up in the woods. Then they would build a company store, then a lumber yard, then housing as more and more miners made the trek back to the mining spot with their families. And because of the remoteness of these coal towns, it was almost impossible to get back out. So the company would pay workers in a form of credit that basically only allowed them to buy things at the company store, owned by the company. So the money never really left the pocket of the mining company. So you move to a coal town like Montcoal, you get paid by the mine mining company in their credit that you spend at the general store in town that is owned by the mining company. And I mean back then there wasn't really any good reliable way to get back out of the hills, so you just the money you got just kept going right back to the place that you earned it from. And it was a vicious cycle, and it was really hard to get out of. It became nearly impossible for the children of miners to leave the town. They had more money to go anywhere, and no transportation to get out, even if they had money. So mining became the family trade. That's why you hear of mining families in eastern Kentucky and West Virginia, where they've been miners since the 1800s. That's exactly what Montcoal was, and to an extent, still was in 2010 when the disaster happened. It's just there's better transportation now. Montcoal was founded in 1918 when Colcord Coal Company opened the mines in what would become Montcoal. They would open five total mines and operate until 1944 when the mines would be sold to Armco Steel. The town was also sold too. What good does a coal mine do for a steel company? 
Well, the two main ingredients in making steel are coal and iron ore. The coal is used in three different parts of the steel making process. One, as a reducing agent. Coal is used to reduce iron ore to pig iron, which is then used to make steel. Two, it's used as an energy source for the blast furnaces, so basically to break up the iron. And three, it's used as a source of carbon for the final steel product. The mines were run by Armco Steel until being bought in 1984 by Performance Coal Company, a subsidiary of Massey Energy. Remember those names. Performance Coal actually ran the mine, but Massey would oversee everything and set the schedules and safety standards and that whole nine yards. The mines ran sort of well and were very productive right up until that fateful April day in 2010. Now, I want to take a rare moment in the series and highlight a particular person who is going to come up regularly in this episode. His name is Don Blankenship, and there is really only one way to describe him. Don Blankenship is an asshole. I'm sorry I realize that I don't cuss very often on this podcast, but there is no better way to describe him. Imagine Ebenezer Scrooge, except when his policies kill someone, he just shrugs it off and continues to do terrible things. When one of the mines he owned in Kentucky had a fire and it killed two miners, a memo that was released in the investigation read, If any of you have been asked by your group, president, supervisors, engineers, or anyone else to do anything other than run coal, you need to ignore them and run coal. That is a direct quote. Basically, ignore all safety standards, just get coal out and make me money. At one point, the wells around his mansion had been contaminated by runoff from one of his mines. He knew the wells were contaminated, so Blankenship had a water line built from a nearby town that wouldn't be contaminated. He then decided not to tell any of his neighbors or anyone else that the groundwater was contaminated because of his mine, which isn't illegal per se, but it is what the kids call a dick move. Anyway, we will come back to him continuing to be seriously awful later, but remember that name. The disaster occurred in the Upper Big Branch Mine. That mine was an underground coal mine located about a mile west of Mont Cole off State Road 3 in Raleigh County, West Virginia. That is the south central area of West Virginia down in the heart of Appalachia, like I said earlier. I don't know how many of you have ever been to coal country, but it's a beautiful place. I spent four years driving through and exploring that area, and it is absolutely gorgeous and wonderful and just excellent to look at. But the weird thing about it is, I don't know if you've ever been to a place where you can just go outside and it just feels old. Like, just old. The trees feel old. The mountains feel old. Everything feels ancient. It just feels like there's a lot of things that have happened in those hills. And that's for good reason. The Appalachian Mountain Range is one of the oldest in the world. They used to be as tall as the Himalayas, but years upon years of erosion, weather, and just wear have worn them down to what they are now. And boy, oh boy, do they have lots and lots of coal. This particular mine was used to get coal out of the Eagle Coal Seam, which was about 54 inches, or 4.5 feet in width. 
The height of the seam was about 84 inches or 7 feet high. The method of mining that was primarily used is a machine known as a long wall. It would cut the coal in a long single slice that would fall off the wall, land on a conveyor belt, which would then be transported out of the mine. As the wall is sliced away, hydraulic lifts hold the roof in place. This method allowed them to produce over 1 million tons of raw coal in 2009. At the time of the disaster, four sections would be producing coal. The one long wall section, Headgate 22, a headgate is the road along the front of the coal seam the long wall will eventually travel along. Tailgate 22, a tailgate is the opposite side of a headgate on the other side of the seam that will mark the end of the long wall. And a room and pillar section. This is how most people mine in Minecraft. That is, they pull out the ore to create a room and leave the untouched rock as supports. This was much more inefficient and was not used as often, so primarily was used, the long wall was primarily the, primarily the way that was used. They had the one long wall running and were creating space for a second long wall. The disaster occurred on April 5th, 2010, which means April 4th, 2010, was Easter Sunday. Because it was Easter, the mine was at, actually not in operation that day in observance of the holiday. You see, you can't make money if the coal is still in the ground. So most weeks, the mine would be running 24-7. The inspections on the night of Sunday, April 4th, all came back relatively normal. There were some belts that needed to be dusted off and cleaned, but other than that, everything appeared good to go. Except it would not be good to go. But we'll get into that more later. There is a lot of information known about this disaster from interviews with workers. But I want to say that several of the upper management officials for Massey, including Don Blankenship, exercised their Fifth Amendment right and refused to answer any questions asked by the Mine Safety and Health Administration, which is totally their right, and we should definitely not draw any conclusions about why they decided not to answer any questions about the incident that killed their employees. Obviously, some employees could not be interviewed because they perished in the incident. We know some of the following because all underground employees were tracked by wireless radio frequency identification tags. There was also records kept of when certain machinery shut off and when certain machinery went into overload and when certain machinery failed. So that also helps to pinpoint a timeline of the events of the disaster. So, on April 5th, 206 total workers were expected to be at the mine. 190 employees of the actual upper big branch mine and 16 contract miners. The day shift crews that worked the long wall at Headgate 22 all arrived at the mine around 6 a.m. and entered via the Ellis portal on the east side of the mine. All the day shift crew members stated they noticed nothing unusual that day, the ones that made it out of the mine at least. Everything operated more or less as normal. The air quality reports were reported from within the mine as per usual. Headgate 22 reported a methane level of 0.3%. Tailgate 22 reported a methane level of 0%. And the long wall also reported a methane level of 0%. Just to give you an idea for future reference, methane's lower explosive limit, so the lowest percentage of methane in the air that will still cause an explosion, is 5%. 
methane's upper explosive limit, so the higher percentage of methane in the air that will still cause an explosion, is 15%. Now, I want to explain lower explosive limit and upper explosive limit a little bit. Lower explosive limit, when you have a lower explosive limit explosion, it's usually doesn't create as much damage and it's usually viewed as a pushing. Like if you have a, a, a gas explosion in a house, if it's natural gas, so natural gas rises, so if you have a lower explosive natural gas limit, not lower explosive natural gas limit explosion, the upper walls will be pushed out away from the roof. If you have a higher, towards a higher explosive limit for natural gas, it will also be pushed out but there will be significant gas left over because it the explosion does not consume all of the fuel that's in the air. So you will have burning left in the house. With the lower explosive limit, you'll have very minimal fire damage, but you'll have pushing at the top. If you hit the middle of that, right in the sweet spot, it's called a stoichiometric explosion, and you'll be finding your house three, four, five blocks away in many, many, many different pieces. So once you get towards that higher explosive limit, you'll have a lot of excess fire after the flame propagation through the, the gas cloud. And if you have a lower explosive limit, you won't find much fire damage, and you'll just find that, that pushing, that disconnect from uh, framing. Anyway, so methane's lower explosive limit is 5%. Methane's upper explosive limit is 15%. None of them were reported anywhere near that range. All reported no hazards. The man in charge of fire protection, literally called the fire boss, Michael Ellswick, reported that six of the ten conveyor belts in use needed to be cleaned, which means they needed to have coal dust blown off of them and removed from the mine. He also reported that eight of the ten conveyor belts needed rock dusting. Rock dust is pulverized pulverized limestone that prevents a coal dust explosion from propagating any further. Basically, the limestone dust acts as a heat sink and absorbs the thermal energy from the explosion further back, helping to prevent the explosion from traveling further in the mine. So if you have an explosion in like a house, the shock wave goes out and it blows the house apart and then it dissipates. That doesn't happen in a mine. If you have an explosion in a mine, it just continues to propagate through those tunnels because it doesn't have anywhere to disperse until it gets to the exit. So it just continues to travel and it continues to build pressure because it's in a confined space. So once it gets to the exit, it is launching stuff out that exit, which we'll see here in a few minutes when we talk about what the miners in the actual mineshaft experienced. So eight of these 10 conveyor belts needed something to help prevent propagation of an explosion. And that, dear listener, is what we call foreshadowing. All these reports were around 2.30 p.m. The only unusual thing that entire day, right up until the mine exploded, was that the long wall quit working from about 11 a.m. to 1.30 p.m. But by the time of all those reports at 2.30 the long wall was reported to be running again. The explosion happened at 3.02 p.m. All power to the mine went out. All communications in the mine ceased. 
From that point on, it would be impossible to know if the miners inside the mine were alive or dead until they could find them. At the time of the explosion, the Tailgate 22 crew was on their way out of the mine for the end of their shift. The Headgate 22 crew was getting into their man trip. It's basically an underground vehicle to travel them through the mine because they're pretty long. The Long Raw crew was still mining. In the minutes leading up to the explosion, the shearer, the thing on the long wall cutting coal off the wall, was shut off by remote control. The water supply to the shearer and the high voltage power to the shearer were manually disconnected about one to two minutes before the explosion. Then, the personnel operating the long wall machine traveled about 400 feet away from the area immediately prior to the explosion. This most likely means that those miners knew something catastrophic was about to happen and did their best to get as far away from it as possible as quickly as possible. The evening shift were loading their man trips to head into the mine when the explosion happened. Several of the man trips had actually entered the mine and were getting a little ways into the mine when the actual explosion happened. Everything was going normal until a loud boom, followed by what was described as a hurricane-force wind, except it was hot. They were pelted with rocks and dust and debris, and several were knocked down. One worker, Mike Kiblinger, was standing by the Ellis portal and witnessed people being blown literally out of the mine entrance by force. He literally said people were being rolled across the ground by the force of the shockwave coming out of the mine. One miner on a man trip on the way into the mine described a whole lot of dust followed by his ears popping and everything being silent. Followed swiftly by a rush of air and the man trip being pushed backwards out of the mine. And they're not small vehicles. They're big vehicles. And it was literally being shoved out of the mine by this force. At the time of the explosion, there were 31 miners inside the mine. Only two would make it out alive. Eventually, the explosion died down. It destroyed all of the fans controlling airflow in the mine. It twisted up rail lines. It blew apart walls. The explosion was reported to be felt in mines up to seven miles away from the epicenter of the blast. Rescue efforts took place almost immediately. About 25 minutes after the blast, several officials entered the mine on a man trip and traveled several hundred feet in before they saw a miner's cap lamp headed at them. And that had to be stupidly reassuring for them, right? Like, you just had this mine blow up in front of you. It's been blowing air out. Debris, people, m giant vehicles, rocks, whatnot, destroying fans, just this whole thing. There is no light. There is no sound. There's nothing from inside this mine. It is completely dark. So you do the one thing you can think of, you get on a man trip, and you head inside that mine hoping to find anybody. And coming at you out of the dust and debris and the pure darkness is this one single miner's headlamp. They had to have felt just pure, oh, thank God we found one of them at least. Maybe this won't be so bad. They traveled a bit further down before they found Timothy Blake who had been working on tailgate 22, headed their direction on his way out of the mine. 
Now, earlier, we had Don Blankenship, who is a massive asshole. But Timothy Blake, well, Timothy Blake is a hero. This man is the baddest of badasses. Timothy Blake and his crew had loaded up into a man trip to head out for the end of the shift around 2.30 p.m. Everything was normal. They'd had no issues. They were traveling on the way out when he describes everything as going black and being stuck in super hot hurricane force winds. So he's sitting in the front of this man trip, and the man trip seats face towards the middle. So all of a sudden, he feels this just insane blast of dust, debris, heat, and strong wind hit him in the cheek. Things were flying around everywhere, bouncing off the walls and the people and the man trip and just absolute chaos. He said someone hollered to put on their rescuers, which is a self-contained breathing mask to aid in escape, so there's no canary in the coal mine situation. Blake said he got his rescuer on and it got completely silent, but stuff was still flying by him. Once he kind of gathered himself, he was able to hear again. The wind was still blowing extremely hard, but he could kind of hear and the first thing he remembers hearing is a gurgling noise. The guy next to him was unsuccessful in getting his rescuer on. So Blake pulls him out of the man trip, checks for a pulse, which he has a pulse, and Blake puts his rescuer on the guy. Then Blake crawls to the next guy. Now, I want to describe what he's seeing at this point. It is so dark, he can't see past his hand. He's had to wipe his face off numerous times because he keeps getting so much dust in it because it's still blowing all this explosive energy out the mine because there's nowhere else for it to go. It's going to get to the other because that's the other thing is it only has a certain number of ways to get out of the mine. It can't go down and out and up. It's going to go to the end of wherever their mine shaft is and it's going to hit a wall and it's going to bounce back. So it's going to travel, bounce back, and come back. So he's getting by, hit by multiple waves of blast force. So it is so dark because he's underground in a mine, in a coal mine nonetheless, which is extremely black because coal is black. Can't see past his hand. He can't get his light on. He's crawling around the mine shaft that has literally just exploded. He doesn't know if the shaft is stable. He doesn't know if it's going to explode again. He probably doesn't know which way is which at this point because it's so dark in there. But that's not going to stop Timothy Blake. He gets to the next guy, checks his pulse, puts that guy's rescuer on him. Goes to the next guy. That's James Woods. He puts on his rescuer. He's still got a pulse. Goes to the next guy, checks for a pulse, puts on his rescuer. For an hour, this man, entirely by himself, crawls around in an exploded mine shaft and went to each and every one of his crew members to check to see if they were alive and to put their rescuers on them and give them a chance to survive. Nine different men he tried to rescue. By the time he got to the last one, it had started to clear and he looked down at his watch. A few minutes to four o'clock. Now those rescuers only have about an hour's worth of oxygen. So what did he do? Well, he went around to each and every one of his crew members to check to see if they still had a pulse. He is struggling to breathe. The oxygen in his tank is quickly running out. He doesn't know if he's going to live. He is making sure that everyone else has a chance to live and not just him. The man is a hero. At that point, 
he could only find one man without a pulse. And that was the one man he couldn't find a rescuer for. Because each miner carries one with him. And this guy apparently put his on the man trip, and it got blown down the mine shaft during the explosion. Obviously. He checked everyone's mask one last time, then started to walk to the outside, and was found by the man trip heading in. Because what else was he going to do? Sit there? If he at least went and tried and found help, he could bring the help back to where his guys were. So, he described it as the hardest thing he's ever had to do, leaving his friends in that tunnel by themselves, not knowing if he would be able to get any of them back out. Only one of his crew members would make it out alive, James Woods. But he saved James Woods' life. Timothy Blake risked his life to save his friends, and for that, he belongs in the Hall of Heroes of Disastrous History. By the time the man trip that headed into the mine arrived where Blake had walked away from, only one of the miners still had a pulse. James Woods would be the last miner to make it out of the mine alive. The first seven victims were declared dead at around 5.45 p.m. Those seven victims were William Lynch, Carl Accord, Benny Willingham, Robert Clark, Jason Atkins, Stephen Hurrah, and Deward Scott. By 7.40 p.m., 12 more victims had been found at various locations along the long wall, all deceased, bringing the total found on day one to 19 confirmed fatalities. Those 12 victims were Rex Mullins, Nicholas McCroskey, Richard Lane, Grover Skeens, Joel Price, Gary Corliss Jr., Christopher Bell, Dillard Persinger, Corey Davis, Joshua Knapper, Charles Davis, and Adam Morgan. At 11.55 p.m., six more victims were found in a man trip, all deceased, bringing the total of 25 confirmed fatalities. These victims were Ricky Workman, Howard Payne, Ronald Maidner, James Mooney, Kenneth Chapman, and William Griffith. By this time, the methane and carbon monoxide levels began to rise to dangerous levels, as well as dropping the oxygen level to a meager 3.2%. Anything less than 10% will quickly kill a human. There was also a significant level of smoke throughout the mine, indicating some hot spots may have still been burning in the mine, so risk of a secondary explosion was extremely high. So the mine rescuers were evacuated. On, by 1 a.m. on Tuesday, April 6, 25 miners were confirmed to have died, two were injured, and four were still missing. The hope remained that those four miners were still alive somewhere in the mine. There were two safety chambers in the mine that held enough food and water to sustain about 12 miners for four days, so there was a chance that if the miners could make it to those chambers, they could still be alive. It took all of Wednesday and Thursday before atmospheric levels in the mine were safe for rescuers to enter again. The rescue teams re-entered the mine just after midnight on Friday, April 9th. Unfortunately, a fire may have been burning in Headgate 22, forcing evacuation yet again before they were able to find the four missing miners. The last four miners would be found along the same area in Headgate 22, across about an hour span from 10.10 to 11.20. These four victims were Joe Markham, Gregory Brock, Edward Jones, and Michael Ellswick. 
it would take until Tuesday, April 13th at 12.57 a.m. to be able to safely remove all the miners' bodies from the mine. But let's really get into what caused this explosion. As we've already covered in our foreshadowing earlier, coal dust is going to play a huge part. But there's a whole host of issues with this mine. So let's just get this out of the way. The responsibility for this disaster and the deaths of these miners falls directly on Massey and Performance Coal. There is no ifs, ands, or buts about it. It is directly their fault. They had the means, the opportunity, and the money to prevent this from happening, and they chose not to. Let's just do a quick list of all the things they did wrong. Spoiler alert, this will not be quick. I originally thought it was going to be quick. It was just going to be one or two paragraphs. No, no, this is going to be long. So let's get started. Number one, Performance Coal would regularly tell employees when MSHA, so Mine Safety and Health Administration, was going to come out to do an inspection ahead of time, which means they were prepared to be on their best behavior when the inspectors showed up. Then they went back to doing whatever they were doing before the inspection. Literally on days when MSHA would do inspections, the managers would secretly radio to the miners in the area the inspector was headed to in order to get them to increase ventilation in that area, thereby decreasing ventilation in areas where miners were working in elsewhere in the mine, so that the area the inspector would be in would pass, and then they would just rotate the area they were focusing on as the inspector went through. They created a whole host of code words and secret passwords and just a whole list of things to hide that they were doing things that wouldn't pass inspection. It was a game of hide the broken base by moving it around so your parents don't see. Number two. Performance Coal would put hazards present in the mine in a separate set of books from the ones they would give to MSHA to inspect, which is, you know bad and hiding from inspectors, which is against the law. Three, there was minimal training on coal dust explosions or coal dust buildup for employees, which is also extremely bad because that is a giant hazard in coal mines because what is coal? Extremely flammable. What is coal dust? Extremely flammable. What is dust in general? Can cause dust explosions. You combine all that, you get a big explosion. Number four, mine operators are supposed to inspect everything before and after each shift for hazards, which they would do, you know, whenever they felt like it, and they would note them in the book, the book they didn't give to MSHA, and then that would be the end of it. There was never any corrective actions taken. They would just do the inspection, say, ah, there's a hazard. That's a problem. Now back to my lunch. Number five, before a shift starts, they're supposed to test the entire length of area of mining of the long wall for methane and oxygen deficiency. That was not done. They tested one end. That was it. That is not going to cut it. Methane groups in clouds, and those clouds can reach that 5 to 15% explosive range by themselves, which will then explode, which will then shake the dust up, causing that explosion to propagate through the coal dust, and, well, this happens. Number six. 
Examiners in the mine regularly didn't turn on their multi-gas detectors at all, which is not helpful when you're supposed to be checking for methane. That seems pretty obvious and kind of seems like a thing that you would want to do if you're going to be in a confined space with potentially explosive gas and you don't want to die. Just thought that would make sense, but apparently not for Massey. Number seven. Coal dust was found in numerous piles, seven feet wide by 12 feet long and four feet in depth. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize that much coal dust rocked by a methane explosion is going to launch that coal dust into the air and cause a bigger coal dust explosion. Apparently it does because they didn't do anything about it, but I, I didn't think it would was that ob, not obvious to clean up the super flammable dust. Number eight. Performance coal was supposed to have two rows of roof supports in the long way tailgate. They only did one. This led to a roof collapse at some point prior to the explosion, which cut off airflow contributing to the buildup of methane gas, which we know started the explosion. So they had a wall collapse at some point, and they just were like, ah, whatever. That's a thing. We're just going to ignore that. That doesn't seem like a big deal at all. Again, in a mine, underground, ceiling is collapsing, just ignore it. What? Number nine. Almost every shift from March until April, so 90-something shifts, reported that the conveyor belts needed to be cleaned of coal dust or rock dusted with limestone in order to help prevent the propagation of a coal dust explosion. It was never done. Number 10. And this one blows my mind. The engineers who helped design ventilation plans for the mine had their plans rejected 13 straight times by the Mine Safety and Health Administration. That is seriously impressive incompetence. I can't imagine having anything rejected more than twice without having a nervous breakdown. Try having something submitted and rejected 13 times that you have to do for your job, and you're just like, eh, say lovey, let kids be kids. The engineers also testified under oath that they had no idea who was in charge of the ventilation system at Upper Big Branch Mine. That's like the fire chief saying he doesn't know who is in charge of the fire department. It's you. You are the engineer. You are the one in charge of it. Come on now. Number 11. Multiple miners testified that they were afraid of being fired if they complained of safety issues. One foreman said that Massey would assign miners who complained to a mine with low coal to drop their production, and miners are rated on how much coal they run. Multiple reported being told not to talk to any inspectors whatsoever. President Chris Blanchard, another one of the disastrous history hall of infamy, was heard saying, if you don't start running coal up there, I'm going to bring the whole crew outside and get rid of every one of you. Which is great for worker morale and avoiding accidents. Good job, guys. 
Number 12. The Upper Big Branch Mine was issued citations at a rate that is hard to fathom. From January 1st, 2010 to April 5th, 2010, there were 94 days. That's total. That's not just days of the week, business days, whatever. That is 94 total days. In those 94 days, the MSHA had issued 117 citations to the Upper Big Branch Mine for safety issues. In 2009, they issued over 400 citations to the Upper Big Branch Mine for safety violations. They just didn't care. They just were just going to continue doing it no matter what happened, how many times they were fined. If you go to the MSHA website, you can look up citations for the Upper Big Branch Mine from like 2005 to 2010, the date of the explosion, and it's just a never-ending list of citations. I think there's over a thousand. I stopped counting after a while. It's crazy how terrible this mine was safety-wise. But let's not let the Mine Safety and Health Administration off the hook here, because they did do a lot of good things. They issued all these citations to Upper Big Branch, Performance, and Massey, but then kind of neglected to follow up on any of them. They did not adequately suggest any corrections. They didn't give them a flagrant violation, which is something like $225,000 fine, which, I mean... With all these citations, you think that they would have reached that point already. But in kind of their defense, there's a highly doubtful that Massey was actually going to pay that fine because at the time of the explosion, they were fighting a ton of the fines to not pay them. So what was the actual cause of this explosion? What was the ignition point, the ignition source that combined with the fuel source? Because all that I just described are contributing factors to why it occurred, not how it occurred. How did it happen? The most likely, and I'm going to say the cause, was poorly maintained equipment. It's always poorly maintained equipment. Look at how the mine was treated. Of course it's going to be poorly maintained equipment. The long wall shear was not well maintained, and several of the cutting bits on the shear had worn down and lost the bit which meant they were rubbing metal, and then combined with cutting up against sandstone at the top of the uh, long wall and the bottom of the long wall creates hot streaks in the sandstone, which is more than hot enough to ignite methane, which ignites at about 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit, 537 degrees Kelvin, and 800, or I'm sorry, 537 degrees Celsius and 810 degrees Kelvin. The methane ignition exploded, which then shook all that coal dust up into the air, which then became a coal dust explosion, which then propagated throughout the whole mine. It is possible that the methane explosion happened and the long wall equipment was on fire, and that's why those miners were found so far away from the machine, because they saw the machine on fire, realized, oh, that's not good, it's on fire, I better run. And that's when the coal dust eventually caught and 
There were other theories put forward, but none of them really make sense. It's highly unlikely that there was an electrical failure in the long wall equipment. No electrical failures were found. Uh, there was no smoking material found on any of the miners or any of the debris or anything like that. There wasn't a reported large amount of methane found in the uh, mine afterwards. It had did have to be evacuated because of the methane levels and the carbon dioxide levels, or I'm sorry, carbon monoxide levels. But it wasn't at that high level you would expect if there was a massive methane explosion. It was probably a very small methane explosion that just happened to hit the sandstone when it was just hot enough to make what happened happened. So, I know I mentioned Don Blankenship earlier. Where does he fall into all this? He's the CEO of Massey Energy. Well, all those issues I listed above, yeah, those are his fault. He frequently told people below him the company didn't have time to cut proper ventilation because that would mean less time running coal, and less time running coal means less money. At one point, he literally said, word for word, you need to get low on upper big branch and run some coal. We'll worry about ventilation or other issues at an appropriate time. Now is not the time. I'm going to tell you, it is always an appropriate time for safety, especially in industri industry. Always an appropriate time for safety. Never an inappropriate time for safety. That is crap. But that's not all. When the long wall first opened, miners in Upper Big Branch were ordered to stop working on a drainage system for the area and had to wade through four foot deep water so they could run coal instead. Draining water out of the mine takes too long. You're not making money draining water, you're making money running coal. Blankenship called paying for miners specializing in safety, quote, ridiculous, and this is another direct quote, Literally crazy. He told one executive he needed to get better at cost-cutting because the executive had a kid to feed, meaning he would fire him if he didn't cut more money, meaning safety. Blankenship told another executive that if coal production wasn't higher, he would, quote, Khrushchev him, end quote. I'm not entirely sure what that means, but... But I think it means he's going to bury him because one of Khrushchev's famous quotes is, we will bury you. So I'm assuming he just threatened to bury that executive in a mine, which is uh, crazy. Blankenship denied a request to build an air tunnel where airflow was below the legal limit. He cut the number of miners working on safety in order to increase coal production. He approved the hide the vase ploy to hide violations from inspectors by using code words and signs. He also regularly used his millions of dollars to more or less bribe West Virginia Supreme Court judges to rule for his company. One judge refused to recuse himself in a case involving Blankenship's company after the judge received a $3 million donation from Blankenship in that judge's election campaign. Obviously, that judge helped the rule in favor of Massey. The U.S. Supreme Court ruled that judge had to recuse himself and sent it back. Blankenship would be charged with four criminal counts of conspiracy to violate safety laws, defrauding the federal government, securities fraud, and making false statements to the United States Security and Exchange Commission. 
He was only found guilty of conspiracy to violate mine safety laws and served one year in prison, which is not nearly enough. Unsurprisingly, because he is an asshole, Blankenship has admitted to absolutely nothing and shows absolutely no remorse. He released a 67-page blog post while he was in jail, because when you're rich, you get special privileges in jail for stupid reasons. Anyway, 67-page blog post in jail, ranting and raving about how he didn't do anything wrong, and he was just a political prisoner, and woe is me, and everybody's picking on the rich guy, and blah, 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 and I'm, this guy's the worst. Oh, he also refused to testify in the investigation of the explosion, because not only is he an asshole, he's also a coward. But, fortunately, Blankenship wouldn't be the only one to go to jail for his role in this explosion, Massey Security Chief Huey Stover was also charged in connection with the explosion with destroying evidence and lying to investigators. He would serve three months in prison. One of the foremen for the Upper Big Branch Mine, foreman in quotes, Thomas Hurrah, was charged with lying about having a foreman's license and spent ten months in jail. Upper Big Branch Mine Superintendent Gary May was charged with conspiracy to violate mine safety laws and cover up dangerous conditions. He would plead guilty and spend 21 months in jail. An attempt was made to pass legislation to help protect miners from things like Upper Big Branch disaster occurring again, but somehow that ended up basically only being a law to drug test miners more, even though none of the miners in the Upper Big Branch explosion had any drug abuse history and were not found to be on drugs at the time of the explosion. So, again, we somehow managed to blame the workers and not the people that are responsible for taking care of safety and helping the people. Shocker. Don Blankenship retired eight months after the disaster, taking home a $12 million bonus with him. Massey Energy and the Upper Big Branch coal mine was bought by Alpha Natural Resources in 2011. Alpha Natural Resources permanently closed the Upper Big Branch coal mine in 2012. In nearby Whitesville, West Virginia, a 48-foot black granite monument features life-size silhouettes of all 29 miners who died and the two survivors. On the back, it tells the story of coal in West Virginia. This would be the deadliest mining accident in the United States since an explosion in Hyden, Kentucky killed 39 miners. I'd love to tell you that the Big Branch mine disaster led to some revolutionary new system for safety in MSHA or anything like that, or even OSHA or anything, but it didn't really lead to much. It seems like it was mostly forgotten by everybody outside of Raleigh County, West Virginia, and the area around there. It's basically done nothing. There was that one bill but it was watered down by lobbyists, and that was pretty much it. They closed the mine, and everybody seems to have just moved on. And that may be more of a product of the times than anything else. Cold jobs are becoming more and more scarce as energy moves away from using coal. There are much more efficient and cleaner ways of producing energy and producing electricity and producing steel that Cold jobs are becoming a thing of the past. And so this disaster will just be a disaster that 
nothing really happens to change it from ever happening again. And I want to point out one of those things that I talked about at the very beginning of the episode with that Tyler Childers lyrics. Just keep on mining, boy, because that's why you were born. A lot of these kids in these hills of West Virginia and hills of eastern Kentucky grew up seeing their dads go to the mines, and they expected to go to the mines when they grew up. They feel like they were literally born to run Colt, and they're going to lose that as these jobs disappear. And that's going to be a major problem. Because I spent a lot of time in coal country. It's not just a job. Coal is a culture. And when people lose their culture, it gets bad. And those areas aren't exactly well off. That's why coal country has such a high rate of drug abuse. People are watching their culture disappear in front of them. And that's going to be difficult for a lot of people to deal with. I want to end today with a little bit of the lyrics from that song by Tyler Childers. We could have made something of ourselves out there if we'd have listened to the folks that knew that Cole was going to bury you. That brings us to the end of this week's episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Remember, you can follow me on Twitter at Disastrous History. So, Disastrous, H-S-T-R-Y, History Without the Vowels, as the username on Twitter. And on Instagram at Disastrous History, spelled correctly. You can also email me at disastroushistory at gmail.com. And also, I have now made a TikTok because apparently that's the cool thing for the kids. And it's also Disastrous History on there if you want to go see some shorter versions of the episodes that fit in 60 seconds. Um, if you want to let me know how I'm doing, send me an email or leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, I would appreciate it. Uh, remember, stay safe and always check your smoke detector batteries. <laughs>